The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. Please open your Bibles this morning to the book of Isaiah, chapter 25. The book of Isaiah, chapter 25. We're going to be looking at two uh, separate passages in Isaiah, uh, in chapters 25 and 26. And the first one we're going to be looking at is in Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. And when you have found that in your Bibles, I invite you to once again stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect and holy word. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Father, our God, we come to you for words of life. Lord, we come to you for words of hope, for words of comfort. And Lord, we read about this day that you prophesied long ago, and Lord, we now know how you accomplish it. That it's through a crucified and resurrected Savior. Lord, this is our hope. That death will be swallowed up forever. Lord, help us today to believe that. May that truth comfort your people today. Lord, would you take your truth, the words of your promises, Lord, would you take it and would you bury it deep within our souls that this would be our bread. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, I don't have to remind you this morning that there was another tragic school shooting this past week. I don't do the counts, but supposedly it was the the 13th school shooting in our nation this year. And, And this one felt closer to me personally. And I think the reason for that is because it was at a classical Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee. So a city that I'm familiar with, a city in the south. And it was at a school, a type of school, the kind of school that I have taught in for off and on for for the better part of a decade and the kind of school that my children have been enrolled in. Hosted in a church. In fact, one of the fatalities, one of the nine-year-old 
children who died was the daughter of the pastor of that church. And predictably, before we even knew the names of the six victims, the race was on to get out in front of this, to somehow use this tragedy to to make it fit into a political narrative. And that was happening on both sides, the attempt to score political points, to use it as evidence of some predetermined narrative that we want to tell about the world, to somehow position this side as the evil side and this side is as the good side. And it occurred to me as I was reading all the headlines with this, and the headlines were so varied, but it occurred to me this week that after all of the years of human history, we still have no idea what to do with the reality of evil and suffering and death. We don't know what to do with it. And the reason why we turn to politics is because politics provides us with a coping mechanism. Politics provides us with a way to avoid it because politics gives us the illusion of control. We begin to think that we can fix all of this. If only these people would do this, if only those people would do that, if only these laws could be passed, then all of this would just go away. We can fix what's broken. See, politics allows us, it appeals to that hunger we have for righteousness. It allows us to point the finger in the midst of tragedy and say, it's those people over there. Politics is the distraction from the ugly truth that no one really wants to face. And that is the truth that the world is broken and we, by human effort, cannot fix it. It's broken and it's been broken and no matter what we've tried in the history of the world, we have not been able to fix it. And the other reality that we don't want to think about is that sooner or later, we're next. We're next. That we live in a world where there's no such thing as a survival story. We live in this world, and in this world, no one makes it out alive. In fact, we live in a world, and no one is even going to get through without deep scars. And that's just the facts. And if you're rich and if you have a lot of money, you can spend millions of dollars to kind of try to negate that truth. You can spend millions of dollars to try to keep your body healthy and make sure you're eating all the right food and doing all the right exercises. And and you can somehow maybe slow that process up, but it's still, even then, it's inevitable. And if you're like the rest of us who don't have millions of dollars to, to spend on slowing the process... We turn to another mechanism. Our option is that we just want to ignore it. Let's just play another round of block puzzle on our iPhone. Let's talk about something easier. Let's spend the weekend vegging out in front of Netflix. Let's talk about politics. Let's debate that. It's a good distraction. 
The problem with that, church, is that when we open our Bibles, the Bible does not give us that option when it comes to this topic. We are not permitted by God to avoid the topic. We're supposed to face it. The Bible offers us a different approach. Psalm 90 verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Do you hear that? Read it again. It's so important. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The Bible calls us as the people of God to face the reality, to live in light of it, to even meditate on it. And the Bible says that is the way of wisdom. Not to hide the reality, not to distract ourselves from it, not to try to pour money into avoiding it. And I often wonder why. Why is that a heart of wisdom? What is it about meditating on on numbering our days that brings us wisdom? And And I think that the answer is pretty clear because when we are aware of our own mortality, when we are aware that we are helpless in the face of it, it gives us the perspective that we need without which God's promises seem distant and abstract. But when we know that this is our end, we turn to the one who can do something about it. We turn, church, to the one who has done something about it. Jesus taught the people that only the sick need a physician. I think we could add to that that only the corpse needs a resurrection. Church, we're walking corpses. And we desperately need resurrection. The book of Isaiah was written at a time in history when death couldn't be ignored so easily. Death was all around. Israel was under judgment, and the way they were being judged was a brutal people called the Assyrians who were known for their ruthless battle tactics and their horrific treatment of the people they conquered. In fact, if you weren't useful to them, you would be put to death in all kinds of imaginative ways, impaling and flaying and amputating. And these scenes of their torture, are they still survive because they are depicted in their art. They celebrated it. They celebrated this kind of cruelty. And the presence of the Assyrians haunted Israel for two decades. Israel had been unfaithful to their covenant. Israel had been unfaithful to their God. And so God mercifully sent the Assyrians to remind them of their desperate need of His grace. And this is the time that Isaiah begins prophesying. I think that's a really helpful perspective for us. You know, if we were in Ukraine right now, I wouldn't have to remind you of death. Right now, there are people in our world who are reminded of mortality every single day. Because there is an invading army killing their people. And that's the world Isaiah lived in too. 
That's the world we live in as well. We just don't like to think about it. But for most of history, death is one of the things that could not be ignored. I've been reading recently about Puritan New England, Massachusetts in the late 1600s. And I read a stat this week that the average married couple in the late 1600s in Massachusetts had nine children. Three of them, on average, survived until the age of 21. Three out of nine. Six of your children, on average, you would bury. That was a time in the world where a child getting a fever didn't mean an inconvenient doctor's visit and make up schoolwork. It often meant death. Ignoring death is a modern luxury. It is not something that's typically been afforded in the history of the world. And so it's in this context of death that Isaiah prophesies these beautiful promises from God. He he brings these words of hope to these people who are suffering, who are living in the shadow of darkness, who see death all around them, who are tempted to be hopeless, who are tempted to lose hope. God in his mercy says, Isaiah, I am going to give you a word for my people so that they will not despair, so that they will look to me, so that they will be comforted. Church, he's still doing that. He's still doing that. You know, a lot of Isaiah's prophecies are just sort of listed in the book of Isaiah, and we don't know exactly what was happening, the precise time and circumstances that this prophecy was given. But what we do know is that the apostles looked to these promises, and they saw that these promises were pointing to Jesus. These are promises fulfilled in Christ. And so the first thing that I want us to see this morning in Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8, is death swallowed up forever. Death swallowed up forever. Look with me at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And so it starts with a feast. Baptist, this should get your attention immediately. This is a feast. It's a banquet. It's a party. Why do people have a celebration? Why do people have a feast? Next week is Easter Sunday, And a lot of you are planning a feast for that. You are going to gather with family, with friends, with church members, with people, and you are going to enjoy a meal. And the reason you're going to enjoy that meal is because you are celebrating something. You are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have feasts to celebrate. It must have seemed strange to Israel as they looked out their window and they saw the fierce Assyrian warriors and invaders prowling their streets, it must have seemed strange to hear Isaiah say, there's going to be a party. There's going to be a feast. Can you think in your life of feasts that you'll never forget? Do you have memories of feasts from your life that are significant to you? 
I have this one in mind where Nikki and I, when we were early, early married, we were in Lexington and a Korean family invited us over to their home for a feast. And what had happened was she didn't even go to our church, but this Korean lady had met a Chinese exchange student that went to UK and and they had worked together and she had been sharing the gospel with her. And simultaneously, people from our church had met this student and they had been sharing the gospel with her. And through the ministry of our church, she believed the gospel and repented and was baptized. And so this lady, this Korean lady said, hey, I want to celebrate what God has done. And I want to invite you and your wife over for a feast. And, and, and I don't remember who all was there. I was trying to get Nikki to help me remember it, but, but I'm pretty sure there were multiple nations represented. There was Korea and China. There was probably Romania and there was the United States. And then within the United States, there was like Alabama and the United States. And then which is a kind of a country in and of itself. And then other places. And I remember this lady bringing I I kid you not, I had never been a part of anything like this in my whole life. Not since later on when I would go to the Brazilian steakhouse. Like an unlimited supply of food. I mean, she had prepared so much food. And I don't know if you've been around many people from Korea, but like it's not an option whether you're going to eat it or not. Like she brings another dish and she's piling it on your plate. And it's so flavorful. It was so good. There was spicy and there was sweet and there was everything in between. There was so much food. Listen, I love Southern food, like fried chicken, fried okra, fried everything. I love that. But I love international cuisine too. Now come to think of it, there's not much food that I don't love. I really love food. But at this table, We weren't just eating to celebrate food. We were eating to celebrate salvation. We were eating to celebrate what God had done. We were celebrating resurrection. He had resurrected this atheist Chinese student who came to the United States to study at a university who had no idea that she was going to come and meet Jesus Christ and go back home and spread the love of Christ for the rest of her life. She had no idea. That's the picture here. I want you to notice in verse 5, on this mountain the Lord host will make for all peoples. Do you see that? That is the scene. This is not, this is not a, a, a scene where everybody looks the same. This is a banquet for all peoples. And when you see all peoples in the Bible, just go ahead and translate peoples as nations. That's what that means. The nations are never an afterthought in the Bible. The nations are not, it's not, reaching the nations is not something the church does like once they've done everything else first. Reaching the nations is essential because the nations are essential to God's plan from the very beginning. If you go all the way back to God's promise to Abram, he's already got the nations in view. And the nations are at this banquet because the nations are celebrating too. The nations are a part of this. And it's quality food. Look at this. It's a feast of rich food. This is not like the barbecue that I got invited to and I was expecting barbecue and they pulled out those frozen patties out of the box from Sam's. 
No, that's not what's happening. This is when the Batishels invited Nikki and I to the Brazilian steakhouse. That's what this is. This is rich food. This is quality. You think about what's going on. Certainly you too have occasions and feasts from your past that stick into your mind. And there's reasons why you remember those feasts. You know, maybe you remember the feast because it was some prestigious host who invited you. You know, like I've never been to a feast like that. But you know, like imagine like the president of the United States inviting you to a banquet. That would be memorable, right? Because of who the host is. You'd be like, I would never forget a feast like that or some other famous person. Or, or, or maybe you remember the feast because of the food. You know, the food was so good. It was the best food I've ever had. I'll never forget it. Or maybe you remember a feast because of the people there. You know, it was like all my favorite people, all the people I love, the people I'm closest to, they were all there at that feast. I'll never forget it. Or maybe it was people that you remember before they died and they're not here anymore. And you remember that feast because there were people there that you love. And, and so you hold on to that memory in memory of them. Or, or maybe you remember the feast because the occasion was so significant. Well, if you want to understand what kind of feast this is, you've got to combine all of that. It's significant because the Lord God is the host. It's significant because the people there are all of his people and all of you and my family. It's significant because it's going to be the best food you've ever tasted in your life. But most of all, it's significant because it is in celebration of what God has done in defeating death. Pictures like this, this is what makes the book of Isaiah so powerful. As you know, if you went through your New Testaments and you did a count of all of the most quoted books from the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the two at the top of the list would be Isaiah and the Psalms. Isaiah and the Psalms. And, and I think that the reason why that's true is because Isaiah and the Psalms are poetic books, and they are full of these images. It's not just data. It's an image that sticks into your mind. It's a picture. When we read this, we feel it. Isaiah is appealing to our imagination. He is bringing back memories. This isn't just words on a page. When we talk about a feast, when we imagine it, there are probably sights that come to your mind. There are probably smells that come to your mind. There are tastes and feelings. And that's how poetry works. And that's why it's so powerful when God communicates to us in that form because it is God revealing His heart to us. We read His Word and we get closer to who He is. And this picture of a feast is a picture that the New Testament doesn't leave behind. And Jesus is always talking about banquets and feasts. The book of Revelation culminates history with this huge feast, this same feast, I think, that, that, that's being talked about here. And you, know, you get to the end of the Bible and you read about all these feasts and church, there's only one conclusion. God is pro having a good time. He is pro-celebration. He is pro-parties. He is pro-laughing and loud-talking and eating till you're full. 
I'm kind of proud of our Baptist reputation when it comes to that, to be honest with you. But I want you to notice the reason. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. I want you to think about this. This is a covering. So something that blocks the light, like these new beautiful shutters that we just got here. You know, if those last week, the people over here would need sunglasses. But the point, the point of this image is that because of death, we live under this dark shadow of gloom, that this pervades the entire universe. Death faces us all. But, but notice what he's saying. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. He's going to swallow up death. And that's so ironic because think about how death works. Death is used to doing the swallowing. Death swallows up everything. Death leaves nothing untouched. And God says, the thing that you can't defeat, the thing that you have to face, the thing that you fear, your inevitable end, that no matter what you do, you can't prolong, you can't put off, you can't get rid of, I am going to swallow up. Your greatest enemy. I'll take it down. I'll lift the veil. You don't have to live under the dark shadow of death anymore. Because I bring the light. And then it gets very personal. He will swallow up death forever, verse 8, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. He's going to personally wipe away the tears from the eyes of His people. Personally. The Lord God will do this. My earthly father, who I love very much, is, is not a very tender person. <laughs> but there's one thing that I'll never forget, that, that actually when I read this is the first thing that comes to my mind. When my mom died tragically in 2014, I got on an airplane and I, as quickly as I could, I flew home to Alabama and my dad was there to pick me up at the airport. And I'll never forget the drive to his house and I'll never forget us going into his house and sitting on the couch. And I'll never forget just being overwhelmed with grief and inconsolable. And my dad not having anything to say, because what do you say? But just wrapping me in his arms and holding me. And comforting me. And church, it comforted me to feel the embrace of my Father in that way. 
And that is what God will do to his people. When you are in your darkest moment of grief, when you don't know which way is up, when all you see is the clouds, church, would you remember that you have a God in heaven who wipes away your tears? Who swallows up death? But this is not just a scene of comfort, even though it is. It is also a scene of victory. Because you see, God is wiping the tears from our faces because He has created a time, He has created a world where tears are not going to be needed anymore. You're not going to need tears anymore because in the future that God is making, we will live with complete restoration and healing. There will be no more heartache, no more grief, no more pain, no more death, nothing else to fear. Could you imagine? I just want you to think about this. Could you imagine attending the feast, the party, that celebrates death's ultimate defeat. Can you imagine the festivities at that feast? You know, we often go to the Gospels, and especially in John's Gospel, well, Baptists always struggle with this one passage. Like, why is Jesus' first miracle turning water into wine? You know, we're like, oh, I don't know about all that. Notice that I didn't even talk about the wine in verse 6. Some of y'all like want me to hit on that. I, I'll just tell you, it's well-aged wine, and I don't know if you know much about wine, but the more aged it is, the stronger it is. That's right there. So, but, but here's the thing. When Jesus, it's interesting because when Jesus goes to the wedding feast and he turns water into wine... The same thing happens. They, remember the comments? They go, well, why, why have you given us the well-aged wine second? Usually you give us that first, and then when our taste buds are dulled, you bring out the cheap stuff, but this wedding feast has saved the best for last. Because Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah 25. Because Jesus is entering a world full of death, and Jesus is telling them, the, the festivities don't have to end. Death does not win. Life wins, which is why immediately after that, what is the theme of John? Eternal life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one who's come to defeat death. I am the one who has come to spread out the feast for all of my people. He will remove the reproach. We don't talk about this a lot, but you know, one of the things that Israel had to suffer was the reproach of the nations because when you were defeated, it was, it, was a, it was a reflection of your God. And so the nations who would come in and defeat them would say, our God is stronger than your God. And so there was this reproach. And we don't live in such a context anymore, but Christian, don't you know that you face reproach too? The world laughs at us when we talk about our resurrection hope. The world mocks us when we say thoughts and prayers. Which I don't really like thoughts anyway. I don't know what, what good it does to think about somebody, but 
you better believe we're going to pray. And this week, you see that being mocked. Well, God is going to remove that reproach. There will come a day of vindication. There will come a day when all who hoped in the promises of God will be vindicated. He will remove the reproach of His people. He wins in the end. We're with Him. We're with the one who's victorious. Well, there's another passage that we're going to look at. Life, birth from death, 26, 16 through 19. Just flip over probably a page. It's, it's in the same sequence of these prophecies. But I want you to see what God promises here. O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. The they here, this is God's people. O Lord, in distress, they, your people, sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. A whispered prayer, church, because that's all they could muster. Because they are so weighed down beneath suffering that all they can do is sigh a whisper. Something like, God help, I'm sure. And, and the image here is that even, even our weakest, whispered, faintest prayer, God hears it. And then we get another image, verse 17. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth. Now this is an image that only a few of us in here can understand fully. It's really funny, we have a member that will remain nameless who recently had a, a stone. And I went to pray with this member. And the nurse said the, the predictable thing that I always hear. The nurse said, you know what they say. This is the closest thing a man will ever experience to giving birth. And you know what I said back? I said, I'm tired of this image. I'm tired of this comparison. I said, you know what? There's no way for us to ever know that. Because there is no man who has passed a stone who has also given birth. <laughs> you can't say that. I have no idea, but I trust women when they tell me that this is painful. I trust you, and I am thankful that I do not have to do this. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. Verse 18, we were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Israel was given a mission by God that Israel was supposed to be the source of blessing for all the nations. And so this idea of, of a, a pregnant woman who is supposed to bear fruit is the image of Israel. Israel was pregnant. They were pregnant with the promises of God. They were pregnant with the provisions of God. And yet in the end, there is nothing but wind. In the end, there is no fruit. In the end, Look at the end of verse 18. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not 
fallen. Church, this isn't just Israel's story. This is the sum total of all of our earthly projects and programs and policies and politics, all of our good intentions. Where has it gotten us? Wind. After all of these years, After the full course of human history, we still live in a world where a 20-something-year-old woman takes an AR-15 into a Christian school and guns down nine-year-olds. That's our world. You know, we can talk about America as the greatest nation on earth. We can talk about the glories of democracy. We can pretend like we've somehow figured something out, but at the end of the day, when you really look at what's going on, we haven't figured anything out. We haven't solved any of our problems. You say, oh, we live longer. Oh, great, so we live longer, so we suffer longer in this world. But the Bible doesn't let us in there. Verse 19, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. The earth, where the dead are buried, will give birth to the dead, and they are going to rise again. That's what God's doing. So what is our response? You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy in the midst of all of the suffering, in the midst of the darkness, sing for joy because you know that in Jesus Christ, the veil of death has been lifted and the light of this world has come and He will reign forever. This is why Paul When we get to 1 Corinthians, and and let's turn, I'm going to turn there right here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 58. How do we live in light of the resurrection? Well, let's follow the example of the apostle. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Paul's been reading Isaiah. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul mocks death because Jesus, Paul's king, has already defeated it. Church, we can mock death too. Let's pray together.
Lord, we come to you with heavy hearts as we look around at, and see just suffering around us, suffering that we're facing personally, suffering on the news, innocent victims. And we resonate deeply with death being like a veil. But Lord, I, I pray that we would resonate just as deeply with the hope that the dead shall rise. That death does not win. That the moment our crucified Savior breathed again, death was defeated forever. And Lord, I pray that you would help your people hope in that promise and live in light of that promise and follow Paul in mocking death because we know that it cannot remove your promises from us. Lord, help us as we respond to your word this morning. Lord, help us to rejoice and give you glory and thanks and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, let us respond to God's word this morning by worshiping the God who promises.